everybody, it is the final episode of Stumbling Towards Adulthood, a five-year journey. Literally, I started the first episode by myself in August of 2014, and in 2015, after my self-indulgent bullshit was over with, my friend Tony was nice enough to come along for a few episodes. Turns out it was a lot of fun, so we continued it. Yes, it's changed formats. Uh, Tony, what did we start off with? We were starting, like, talking about, like... I think the very first thing we did was, um, I think it was Dungeons and Dragons. I think that was the first Something one. Like, and yeah. we just, well, that we was just for, talked about like, That was for back in Tunes. It was when you came over here, oh, I think we started God. talking about like the, the, the staples of your youth. You know, going on road trips, going to college, uh, dating. Right, right. Uh, the Atari 2600 was one do, of the episodes. Fox Network, you yeah. know. We do topics, right? We, uh, we would do topics that impacted us, um, certain things that impacted us throughout our childhood. And then they just happened in random years, and then we decided to do it. Let's just do it in a sequence of years. Yeah. That way we can cover those, we can cover those topics uh, sequentially instead of just going back and forth all over the place throughout, throughout the 80s slash 90s. Right. I mean, originally it was going to – I was going to end the show at the 50th episode, um, but we, we just kept bouncing ideas around. We're like, do we really want to go – you know, because originally I think the idea was we're going to do pop culture moments from the day, from the year that you were born, you know, yeah. uh, 70, what, five, 75 through 75 for me, probably 76 for you. 77. Well, January 1st. So it's real on the six hour difference. <laughs> um, so that was kind of the concept at first. And we realized there's just those episodes would be like 15 minutes because I look, I'm like, I don't really give a shit about much from 76, 77. I'm like, we're going to talk Star Wars for an hour. Whoop. Plus, I just don't remember much from it. So, going back to the original format, I started this show off by talking about the middle school and high school years, and then wrapped it up at college, and then it took like six months off before we picked the show up again, so that's what we did. Mm -hmm. We started at the point that he started middle school, so we started with 86, and then we're going to end in 99. Technically, I graduated December like 12th of 1998, but let's just finish off the decade. Um... Maybe at some point we find it interesting to talk about the 2000s. I doubt it because there's so many other things we want to do. So thank you, everybody, for the support through all these episodes. I think we did 42 of them. And uh, our next show is going to be about sketch comedy. Hopefully I say this and you don't steal the fucking name. So maybe we should do an episode before we release this. Uh, it's going to be called <laughs> The Scholars of Sketch. It's going to be uh, the, the format originally we were discussing. I'm not sure if... We're going to go show by show or year by year or eras like, you know, SNL. There's that first era, the 75 to 79 or to 80, I guess, is when it started to revolve. We'll figure it out as we go because there's a lot of stuff. I don't want to talk about every single year of Kids in the Hall. You can do that in just one episode. Same thing for Mr. Show. That's true, yeah. But I feel like, I feel like the one idea I was thinking is SNL almost changed every single year in one way or another. You know, cast members kept revolving in and new sketches would be tossed out and new ones would come in. Every year, single year, we should touch on what happened that year in SNL. And then we talk about the other sketch shows that debuted in those years. Okay. Yeah. The year, there's like, I remember like the, the Friday night version. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're going to touch upon all sorts of crazy variety uh, sketch shows because so it's going to include the Muppets. We have to talk about the Muppets. Uh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you know what? I didn't even think about those. That's that's very, very true. Very true. Yeah, I would say that more of a variety show, but that is that is kind of a sketch comedy. It, it's it's borderline because um, SNL technically is a variety show. It's not just a sketch show. True. Oh, you're right. 
Yeah, no, they're, 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 there's always a musical act. Yeah, so there's going to be like Fridays, the new show, which was Lauren Michaels' follow-up to SNL, which was a huge bomb I got to find episodes of, SCTV, Kids in the Hall, Mr. Show, the Ben Stiller Show, so many throughout the decades we can do. That's probably going to be, what, next year is the 45th season of uh, SNL, so I figured once a month, and we'll probably do about 45 episodes. Okay. Take four years? Okay, maybe that's a long journey. We'll see how <laughs> we'll see how this rolls out. <laughs> Not sure I want to do that for four years. <laughs> or maybe I can have guests come in and hop in and out of the show while you and I like you can do one, then I can have someone else do one, and you know, so you do every other year. Yeah, I'm sure there's people who are definitely have more of a you know more expertise than I. I mean, I'm very I'm a very casual fan. You know what I mean? I'm yeah, really, but I'm going to send you episodes. Trust me. We're going to we're going to experiment. We're going to find all sorts of weird stuff, especially like. Comedy Central seemed like they had a new one every single year during the 90s, and they always failed. That's true. All right, so let's wrap up this episode with our final year, 1999. And as always, we start with music. And boy, why was I nostalgic for 1999? I look back at the catalog of stuff that was released, I was like, oh, shit, this is garbage. (laughs) All right, so um, I apologize to everybody. I'm going to find, usually we just do debuts. Or really, really big albums. I'm kind of grabbing just what I, I thought was interesting from that year. Okay, have you ever heard of a Canadian band called Hawkwind? No. It sounds more, it sounds like a Silverhawks kind of thing from like an 80s cartoon. It kind of does. It's uh, They're a progressive hard rock band, kind of like Rush. But they're a little even more uh, artsy-fartsy. Like, uh, hey man, let's go drop some acid and just jam out to this. They had four fucking albums in 1999. A band that has been around since like 74. I've never heard of, I've heard of them, but I've never heard a single one of their albums. How did they do four in one year? That's like one of those bands, like like the, the Jayhawks. Everyone's like, it's like a always critical acclaim. I couldn't tell you one song, the Jayhawks. Did. Yeah. Well, like, oh man, the Jayhawks, they're it's, great. Like, oh, I don't know. I bet you they're a jam band. I bet you that's what it is. They just noodle around. They're not looking for pop singles. They're looking for just whatever new creative angles they can go for. Like the way, do you remember John Frusciante, the guitarist from Red Hot Chili Peppers, when he went out on his oh, own? Oh yeah, yeah. Like well, he, he would. He's still putting out solo stuff to this day. Wow, because yeah, he was putting out like three a year, and I remember Ryan Adams was putting out two or three a year. Some guys just have a lot in them. But they don't sell that well, so they must have really, really low budgets. That's why the studio doesn't ditch their ass. Yeah, just low overhead. I just, like I said, like they're not like the uh, the record company. They might be on an independent label. The record company is not showing a lot of money for the next label, so it's not really costing that much. So yeah, yeah so totally. And the, the like, musical landscape is different. Back in the day, they would sign an artist to like you know, the Aerosmith back in their heyday, you know, like the early '90s. They would sign them to like a 10-year deal, and they have to put this out this many. Uh, albums about in that particular span of time i don't think record companies are doing that anymore no 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 i think the last huge deal was rem which dreamworks immediately regretted because i think the third album from that deal was a Mm -hmm. massive flop it only sold like two hundred fifty thousand uh copies and they're like oh shit what have we done we signed them for like 50 million (laughs) dollars which was insane back then yeah, it would be fiscally irresponsible to do that now. They're not going to stop it. No, one, no one's buying albums like that anymore. Yeah. It doesn't make, make sense for them. There's a reason why DreamWorks Records is not around anymore. Um, uh, Beck had a huge comeback with Midnight Vultures. Um, what was the one that he did before that was kind of pensive? Was it Sea Change? Oh, Sea Change. Yeah, that was. He was apparently he was going to a, a really bad breakup. And I like the few. That's like a, a that's like a critically acclaimed darling. All the critics love that one. 
and it's good, but it's really slow. It's really, yeah. really depressing. Really well, I mean, bad. 96, we had that massive one, and, you know, it went at three or four big hits off of it, and then all of a sudden he just changed everything. We're like, what is this? I remember being hugely <laughs> disappointed. But a, we didn't realize... Yeah, we didn't realize until Midnight Vultures that he was trying to do the Bowie method, is that each album is going to be wildly different. I would say Bowie took a little bit longer to get, like, he would have, he would change formats slowly over, like, three or four albums. Then he would become a different artist. Beck would do it with every single one, and they, sometimes they're hit, sometimes they're missed. I think the last great album he had, though, was Guero. Uh, one after that, um, it was decent. I can't feel like me, I can't remember. Shit. I, I'll never get it. I guess I'm not That's really okay. recalling album titles, but he had he had one or two other ones after that. And well, the last one he had, um, they were just touring. I saw him go on a tour in 2014, and uh, whatever album he was promoting for that one, that one got him a Grammy. Um, but that's the one. That's like one of the ones Kanye West went up and protested that he won a Grammy for. Where it's either <laughs> I'm but, sorry. Um, Anybody who writes a song that goes scoopity whoop, scoopity poop, has no right to tell anybody <laughs> who deserves to win an award. Jeez. And then he actually heard some of the tracks on that on Beck's album. He's like, all right, I, I admit this is a pretty, this is a oh. pretty decent album. <laughs> yeah, at that point he hadn't even heard it. He just what a dick! What, a, yeah. what kind of douchebag does that on a live national idiot? Um, a narcissist. That's yeah. what you know. A malignant narcissist. The final album from Rage Against the Machine, an album that I would say is probably their best. I know they did a cover one the next year, but I don't count that. But it's just strange that a band that is so important to a time right now, and where have they been? Where were they through all of Bush? You know, Bush W. Uh, where are they all yeah. through Trump? And we need Rage Against the Machine, you know, making amazing protest songs, and they're just MIA. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. Where where is the protest rock we had like in the late sixties, like you know your MC Fives or, or whatever, or your Edwin Stars, these people who are writing, or you know the Birds, or people who are writing this protest music, you know, for this travesty. I mean, yeah. this is, I mean, I'm not comparing this to like Vietnam, but there is some there is some serious injustice going on. Right. Well, we, we did we have speak. we did have Green Day and Beastie Boys had two albums that were extremely critical of uh, W. And yet, I haven't That's heard true. anything from Trump yet. Like, I mean, it's starting to show up in movies, though. Have you noticed this? Like, it's slowly leaking mm -hmm. into our movies, and I just feel like there's nobody. I don't know. I hate to be the old man in the room, but it just dawned on me. Like last year, I was like, I don't know anybody that's in the top hundred. Like, I don't know any of these it's people. Weird. Most of the names I don't even recognize. I don't know any of the guests on Saturday Night Live, and it all seems like it's the same passive, aggressive, generic music meant to appeal to thirteen-year-old girls, and I don't understand. People are worried about their album sales, you know, when it comes down to it. I mean, it's not like the same. Like, like you had such a diverse. Well, I guess back in the '60s, you had enough people who would buy albums still, or wouldn't have made a difference if you alienated some like some conservatives or whatever. But I think now it's like as divisive as things are. I didn't realize it's weird. I mean, I'm not trying to go off on political tangent uh, rant here or a tangent, but I didn't realize how many young conservatives conservatives there were until I moved to the South when I was like, oddly enough, in '99 when I I moved from. Um, you know, Philadelphia to Ned Biloxi. I don't know for whatever reason, I always just thought all conservatives were old, no matter what, what part of the country you're in. Yeah. Just conservatives were old people because they don't want progress, they don't want change. They just, you know. Well, I assume the young people, have, you know, were in the area where I moved to would be, I'm not saying they would be like progressive liberal, but they're at least, very least moderate. It wasn't the case. And it's like, um, they just don't want to alienate, uh, you know, a young conservative fan base 
um, and uh, you know they just really been trying to protect the bottom line and you know because it's expensive to make an album you know and it's uh, and you know I'm not saying I you know I totally disagree with them but it's like yeah you wonder where you know wonder where some of these I think Bruce Springsteen's doing some some you know some uh, protest songs at some point but yeah where's the young artists who even, right who, who could who could make a difference you know. You know, it's funny, it's looking back on 99 and rock, and I'm not just talking like wallflowers, you know, jangle rock, stuff that appealed to teenage girls. This is the year that new metal broke through, you know, and rap metal was in the top 10. And it's just, it's not just the power stuff, it was just like, it's so shocking that some of this stuff was so huge, moving millions of records. And I couldn't tell you anybody who plays rock music right now that, I think the last big one is Imagine Dragons, and that's been like six years. Who is playing rock and roll anymore? Yeah, it's really it's. I don't know even even the current currentish rock stations kind of delve back and forth. They do like a catch-all. It's like part classic rock and part um, like temporary rock. Because I don't think they, I don't think there's enough. Yeah. You know I mean, there's enough out there for them to like you know just do that. I when I was an intern and back in '98 uh, before I moved away. Um, we had like a, a, a younger, uh, you know, an 18 to 34 rock and roll demographic, and it was that kind of rock, like your stained and your Godsmack and that stuff. D-O-D. And occasionally, <laughs> yeah, and occasionally even they would like delve back and like some Zeppelin, Scorpion, or something. Yeah, like, I mean, earlier because they just, the catalog wasn't wasn't there, you know. Uh, part of it, I think, is going to be I, eventually it's going to have a tipping point. I think people get sick of certain sounds in, in radio. So I think rock and roll will eventually make its way back, and some of the nostalgic, you know, nostalgia for '90s acts is going to kick in. I mean, already we saw some 41 has had their first, you know, charting hit uh, in over a decade, which was actually a surprise to me. The, the album's actually amazing, but I'm just wondering if some of these guys, like you know, we always mock Smash Mouth. I wonder if they're going to have a comeback because it seems like a lot of those bubblegum pop bands that we mocked for years. Well, it's the, you know, all of a sudden you start getting nostalgic because you have kids and you want your kids to listen to safe music. So you listen to that and you realize, hey, this isn't that bad. Stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, like 90s acts still sell. I didn't, I didn't hear you say what? Unless they're going to like, like retro rival tours and whatnot. You know? Yeah, I just feel like it's going to. I bet you, and I heard that Fourth Wave Ska is starting to get a lot of ground. So I'm just curious if a lot of these acts are going to have comebacks. We're going to re-embrace. Well, I think it's, I think it's weird. So. The biggest bands are the ones that have been around for you know decades now. Red Hot Chili Peppers is still one of the biggest bands in the world. Foo Fighters, stuff like that. Hey, are you there? <laughs> so in '99 is the year that rap metal and new metal and the fucking boy bands and the cutesy little girls that grown men obsess about their 18th birthday. You know, it's like when we had Britney Spears and Christian Aguilera and the Backstreet Boys and 98 Degrees. And God, God. And that's when TRL broke through. Just, I don't look back fondly on any of this. I can't, it's a, you know, the one, it's so weird. It's like one of those boy bands keep coming back in cycles. And it's like, it's one of those things that just keeps rearing its ugly head. And no one ever gets sick of it. Yeah. I mean, like, well, girl, like young girls never get sick of it. But it's like, you can go all the way back in the 60s. It just keeps coming back in different eras. So, you know, and it's not like anything new. They're all doing some kind of pseudo R and B kind of thing. 
It's not like it's fresh from Venom, but it just keeps coming. You can't. And now there's like a Korean version. It's BTS. Yeah, which um, I just discovered. I was like, there's like 12 of you. How do you even pay for this band? And young, like American girls. That's a big thing. That was like they were just on Saturday Live. They're like huge. I thought it was would only be oh, only Asian American. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you know, you're good old fashioned uh, apple pie eating white girls are in there too, man. It's like. It's just so strange. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just, it's just unusual. Yeah, I mean, it, it surprises usually, you. Yeah. yeah. Usually you're the clean cut, boy next door looking kind of person. You know, what I mean? but, you know it's like if anything's popular enough, it'll eventually catch on. And, you know, everywhere. Uh, some of the one hit wonders. This is a big year for one hit wonders. Uh, some of the ones that get stuck in your head um, is Lit. Well, no, I guess Lit isn't a one hit wonder. I just said that literally as I, I forgot they had <laughs> two. Uh, you make me miserable or. You make me completely miserable. Yeah, but that's not but the one that, that anybody remembers. The other one, the other one everybody knows. Yeah. yeah, and every time I hit any sort of like power punk or alternative 2000s, uh, uh, it's not emo. What's the other one? Um, every, uh, darn it, it's, it's like, you know, the good Charlotte bands, whatever, those kind of bands. Lit is always like uh, the first one. It's always Eve 6 and Lit are always yeah. on this list. I don't know what kind of genre that falls into, but they do. They do have that similar kind of vibe. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, this uh, that that genre won't like kick in and for a couple of years. But if you look at it, it's kind of like the way Weezer started emo. These guys started mm. like power punk, pop punk, pop punk, melodic melodic pop punk. Yeah, and I have very this... much not. Yeah, I have no problem with this, except when they start diving into really really whiny stuff. Like, yeah, I get it. You're a kid. Shut up. I don't know the problem with like the pop side of punk, but when it's edgeless, it just doesn't. It just seems generic, and it seems like really formulaic. It doesn't seem like you know what I mean. Yeah. Like there's a difference between like the pop, the pop punk that Green Day does versus the pop punk that Blink One Eighty Two does. It just it, the, the the vibe is cool. Yeah, it's it's kind of a. It feels manufactured. It's out of a a, t- a tiger beat. <laughs> that, that's what it seems like. No, totally. I mean, and I'm not saying I'm not saying it, it is that way, but it does it does come across as if like some kind of A and R record record exec decided this is the sound they're going to go with. You right. Know what I mean? And this and is I'm the look you're going to have. This is the attitude you're going to have. Yeah. It's all put together by somebody in charge. You know, like oh, this is the producer. It's yeah. not natural come together. Right. For all I know, it could be completely organic, but it just doesn't seem that way. It just yeah. feels very feels very manufactured. Um, previously, we talked about REM having a huge album contract that didn't do very well. Well, guess what? Robbie Williams is another guy who signed this massive deal, and he just never really broke through in America. He had a couple hits off his 99 album, The Ego Has Landed, and then it just kind of faded away. Yeah, so that's another guy who started off in the boy band, that boy band Take That, and then he, he had massive solo success, more so across the pond. but. He is so rich. You wouldn't realize because he because of his lack of um, chart success over here. But he he has a huge mansion that's right next to Jimmy Cage of Led Zeppelin. Wow. You know, and then I mean just by like comparison, you like to figure like 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 someone like a castle. So you know what I mean? It's like that that kind of album sales has just been going strong for so many years in England. And he's just like he's like. I honestly he thought he was going to be a movie star. Time. I really thought they, they were going to start putting movies because he has that look, that charm. I can see him in kind of he a does. goofy spy film. Yeah, he does. He does have a certain kind of charisma for sure. And I can definitely see him being the perfect kind of crossover in a film success. You know, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen. I, I bet if they, you know, if they, he was, that was to happen today. It just seems to be happening a lot more frequently today. You see a lot of like 
talented martial arts stars becoming maybe not like uh, a list movie stars, but become being in movies and you know, you're the rock, you're right. They're they're K-pop stars. They get developed into action stars there, and then they come over here and usually do a movie or two. Yeah, no, you're right. But that, that was, I mean, that was a decent. I remember that song Millennia from back then, and uh, it was it was it was catchy. It was good. It was a decent song. I didn't I didn't want to like it because I was already aware of him from Take That. I didn't want to see another boy band going. You know, you know I didn't want to see a boy band uh, guy going on solo success. Yeah. I didn't feel like they, they deserved it, like they earned it. But, <laughs> you know, I give credit where credit's due. It was, it was, it has to be song. The, uh, so uh, another one-hit wonder that, oh my God, this song just leaks into your brain and will stay there forever because it's so weirdly formatted. First off, it's a huge sample from some disco song back in the 70s. But then it had this high-pitched girl and this whispery guy, Don't Steal My Sunshine by Len. Oh, yeah. I do remember that song. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? Uh, what's the original? It'd be really what's funny. Oh, uh, you know, I should look that up. It plays every single day at work. Uh, yeah. But um, the uh, I think I, I just saw it in. I just watched Boogie Nights yesterday, and it was in that. They used a sample of it. But what's funny is I was thinking about how they recorded that, and there had to have been a guy doing that whispery voice calling out to nobody first, and then they had to record her on top of that. And I just think that'd be really funny if that that one tape got out there and they forgot to add the girl. It's like, why is there long pauses yeah. and who's he whispering to? <laughs> it would be really kind of weird if you could isolate that and just take that away. It would sound so odd. All right, "Steal My Sunshine" is sampled from the ring. Uh, thank you for not showing me, you assholes. Um, sample of Andrea True Connection. All right, I don't know what the hell that is. Yeah, no, but I, 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 I hear the original version all the time. And uh, every time I hear the original, now, now I'm forced to think of the Len version. From yes, like, uh, yes. From, from the 90s. Oh, no, it says, oh, it's, that's, the, that's the artist. Andrea True Connection, that's a weird name. It's from More, More, More. Oh, that's it. More, more, more. How do you like it? That's it. Thank you. Now I got that stuck in my head. But yeah, it's a, that's a band where I listen to that album, and I'm like, yeah, they're a one-hit wonder and deserve to be. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, when the strength of your catalog is a song where, like, the basic hook and, like, the, uh, the, the catchy part of the song is a sample from, like, I don't know, a song that's, like, 20-some years old. Then, yeah, you're, you're not really on... You're on shaking your legs to begin with. Yes, that's what I always thought. If, if your first or your biggest uh, breakthrough song is a cover or uses a sample that we're very familiar with, the chances of you becoming more than a one-hit wonder are cut in half immediately. For sure, yeah. The uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers ruled 99 with Californication. And I, I think they had like eight hits off it, and they won like every award. Do you remember that video? Like it was all CGI, and everybody was like blown away that you could afford to do that in an entire video. Yeah, it seemed super high tech for you know for the time. I was like, oh my god, these guys are gazillionaires are doing like movie quality stuff. In the videos, you know? <laughs> yeah, I didn't get sick That's of that one. People so, still paying attention to videos. Shockingly, I did not get sick of any of the songs off that album. Whereas. I cannot listen to Under the Bridge ever again. I will run screaming in the other direction. And that's one of those ones. Um, oh, that one and Soul to uh, Squeeze. Oh, Soul yeah, Squeeze. I forgot from Coneheads of all things. They just pushed and yeah. pushed. Those are like probably the only two. Those two Chili Pepper songs are like My Stairway to Heaven that I've heard a million oh, times. Yeah. I don't feel like hearing it again. But they're good, don't get me wrong. But yeah, they've been so played out. It's, <laughs> it's, really, hard. it's really hard to listen to them with fresh ears anymore. 
this typically I would say for the next uh, decade, but I thought it was interesting, is that this is when White Stripes debuted. This little scrappy duo that somehow just kept putting out albums, and then 2002 is when they really connected. And mm-hmm. I, ref- I feel really bad for Meg White. What happened to her? <laughs> well, I mean, it's a whole weird thing when they first came out. And apparently they were trying to mark themselves as a brother and sister, even though they're ex-husband and wife. Like uh, Smoking Gun, found it out later. It was just strange. But uh, yeah, she wasn't, I, I guess she helped Jack White write some of the songs. She wasn't a great musician. She wasn't a, she wasn't a, terrific, a terrific talented drummer. So you know, you're kind of limited about what she could do with that. With what she's able to do with the drums. Gotcha. But um, and but she was incredibly uh, uh, stage stage shy. She had a really bad case of stage fright. She really hated performing. Um, she didn't mind like you know like recording and uh, you know and stuff like that. But she hated to perform and she hated to tour. So there's only so you know they can only last for so long. Like, huh. Part of part of the deal is you know some bands get away with that. Like the, like the Cure, Robert Smith is another one who's like hates to perform. Also, but they could still. They can still sell albums without like you know, when you're a, when you're a, a when you're a young when you're a new band you kind of have to you know get the word out by paying your dues and touring. It's, it's also a way you can you know, also way you, also way you make money. Right, right. Well, I guess I'd answer that question. I never knew it. Um, three uh, <laughs> long-awaited albums. This is the end of our music segment, everybody. <laughs> I feel sad. Uh, three long-awaited albums from Dre, STP, and Filter come out, and. If you were to tell me that the filter would have had the biggest hit of either one of those, um, I mean, my jaw would have hit the floor because they were set up to be a one-hit wonder. They had, hey man, nice shot, and then it was a four and a half year gap, and I still don't know why it took so damn long. I mean, mind you, the toadies took longer, and it did some serious damage, but take my picture was a top ten, and that's one of those songs that just wouldn't go away, and. I know, I think I listened to one of their albums from about three or four years ago, and they're still really good. But it's a particular sound that people are looking for that's not mainstream. Yeah, it's weird. That, that, one, that one did uh, grab, grab a hold of the, uh, of the general public for a while, and I was, I was playing the radios for a long time. It did, I mean, it sounds very dissimilar to Hey Man, Nice Shot, but it's still, it's still a really, really good song. And I'm, yeah, I'm surprised that, you know, they're able to come back after so many years, and that's pretty much it. I think there's a few remixes of that song that I've heard, like, like around that time as well. But apart from that, they have not done anything. Yeah, since. it's it's if you are a one hit wonder and you take that long, usually people will not have anything to do with you. I'm stunned their their label didn't just drop them, but uh, it paid off in the long run. And hey, they're still together. Um, STP came back with number four, and this is the one where it got a little bit different. Where they started infusing like country into it and almost folksy style music and it didn't do well it's it was kind of like their last solid album um they, they were doing one more called thank you which was kind of a dud only had like one good song on it and then that was it for a long time yeah they really had a hard time you know uh, finding that uh finding that sound they had in their earlier years i just like you know this wasn't i don't know they were just trying to they're, they're you know I mean, it's weird as an artist you want to experiment you don't want to do the same thing over and over again. Right. Know. Also, people move on. The grunge sound was dead by the time this album came out, so it made sense for them to expand it to other things. For some reason, it just didn't work. Yeah, I guess you know. I don't. I don't. I don't recall any of the tracks off of that album, but I, I, I maybe maybe that. I, I can't either. I listened to this album a bunch, 
And there was one that was big because it had Sarah Michelle Gellar in the video and it was shot in black and white. Something girl. Amanda oh. girl? Oh, that's from a different... Whatever. Oh, I could look it up. I'm not going to cheat. But yeah, that was kind of like the sign that, oh, well, I guess that's the last gasp of grunge. I think yeah. Pearl Jam had a, a big hit that summer. What was that one? Uh, the Day My Baby Died or something? You remember the one that was once they oh, won't stop that playing? Was, that was... Yeah, that was for like that was a cover and that was for like a charity. Yeah, thing. I hated that song. I really did. It I really good. loved it. Yeah, it wasn't good. Um, yeah, but like everyone was like, "Oh, it's so good." It's about it's about like I understand what the song's about and I, I understand it's for charity or whatever. But I understand it's like you know it's a cover of a I guess a oh, I don't know if it was a, a charting song back in the fifties or sixties, but doesn't mean I have to like it. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? <laughs> they can't have all the good adventures in the world. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this. Good. They had a much better cover that they did for a surf album. I couldn't tell you what it was. It was from like uh, 96. And there was a whole album of songs meant to go towards you know cleaning up the oceans. And they did a cover of Grammy Out of Control, which is phenomenal. Hmm. I remember like, uh, this is probably years after. Eddie Vedder did like a, a solo ukulele like album or something like that and i was like all right man maybe maybe this wasn't ready for like yeah like, ready for release maybe this just could have been a vanity project <laughs> like a uh, soundcloud where you just donate money and <laughs> if you feel like paying for it yeah um <laughs> all right over in movies oh hold on i forgot dre dre 2001 we waited years for this and i wasn't a huge fan of with, him uh, is this one with that keep keep their heads ringing Ding, ding, dong, ding, 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 no, no, it wasn't. Um, this is the one which the track with Eminem, uh, Guilty Conscious or something like that. And it starts off with that TR, uh, THX sound effect and whatever. It was big and I listened to it all the time. And then I didn't listen to it for like a decade. And I listened to it again. And I was like, oh, this is fucking garbage. He repeats the same <laughs> insults and lyrics. This is barely an album because half of it's filled with other artists. I can't believe it sold so well, and it's just, uh, it's junk. It's weird when you revisit something. Sometimes, sometimes you'll have the absolute effect. Oh my god, why didn't I not like this? Is I didn't give this the credit it was due back then. Yeah. Now it's like, ugh, why was I into this back then? Awful. Yeah, yeah I just looked back on '99. It was a little rough. Uh, movies though, movies 1999 for the most part were pretty rad. But I'm gonna start off with a movie that I don't think is rad, but it wouldn't go away. It was the first big hit in 1999, and it was Varsity Blues. And how many fucking times did we hear, I don't want your life? <laughs> <laughs> I was about to see that quote, too. That's the only thing I have to say. I didn't see the movie. To this day, I've never seen it. Yeah. It just it was not. Like, I don't need to see a high school football movie. Not my... No, know. it's just... I don't care how good the acting oh, is. It's not, yeah. it's not interested in the theme. You know but I mean? there was a moment where we thought James Vanderbeek was going to be a star, and who knew that Paul Walker would be the one from that movie to break out? We had the infamous Van Halen stripper teacher scene. We had the whipped cream wearing girl. It was like one of these movies that just at that exact moment was going to be a hit. If you released it a year later, nope. Yeah, it seemed like, I mean, for me, for keep mind, I didn't see it. But at the time, it seemed like a Texas version of Fast Times. But yeah. Not, but, not, but not in a good way. Yeah, yeah. Me? Say, like, Fast it, Times is one of the greatest movies cheaper. ever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're full on into like teen exploitation. It's hard to say teen exploitation without it sounding like a horrible thing. Um, yeah, but this is when we had like, like kind of pedophile thing. Yeah, yeah, it does. But I mean, we had uh, uh, Dawson's Creek was you know huge, and then we had um, She's All That. 
Varsity Blues. It felt like every single week there was a new teenage movie coming out. I think the only one that's any good is 10 Things I Hate About You. I've only seen bits and pieces of that. Yeah, so yeah, I, I know Heath he, he Ledger was in it. Yeah, yeah, I remember being good, but you're comparing, you know, oh, a, a bowl of gravy to uh, a nicer bowl of gravy. Okay. You got anything to go with that <laughs> yeah, gravy? Far, no? Okay. <laughs> as, far as, as far as the other one, she's on that and that kind of stuff. I had, at the time, and I'm not trying to be like, not, look, I'm a casual, passive, you know, movie fan. I'm not like some kind of, you know, guy who watches like, you know, art house films or anything. But that just was not, it was not speaking to me at the time. Like, yeah. oh, look at this adapted piece of trash. I can't watch this. Well, speaking of art house movies, I'm sure this one spoke to you. Um, it didn't speak to me so much, but I get why people like him. Guy Ritchie makes his debut with Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. No, I didn't, I didn't know any theaters that were playing at the time, but when I first did see it, I was like, oh my God, this film, this movie's amazing. You know what I mean? Why is nobody talking about this? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. like, as far as I was concerned, it was like on par with Pulp Fiction. I say, yeah, we were talking about that. We just did an episode about movies that were influenced by Tarantino. And Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, in my opinion, would only be made if Pulp Fiction and Trainspotting were big hits. And and that's how he's like, well, let's put the two together, basically. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, without without the success of uh, Pulp Fiction and Trainspotting, I can't think that being nearly as – I can't say Guy Guy Ritchie had any career. Yeah, or Jason Statham. Jason Statham made true, his debut yeah. here. Very true. That's right. And to a sadder effect, that guy, Vinnie Jones, who <laughs> had a little bit of spark for a moment there, and now he does the worst directing. You could probably buy him for a sandwich, and, and he'll be in your movie. Well, it was cool when he, when he first came, but he's the same guy in every movie. He's pretty, he's pretty one-dimensional. And he's yeah. That, you know, he's that hard-charging, you know. Guy with crazy eyes who like who he is in real life, or at least he was. Like back when he was a professional soccer player, he was that maniac. But, uh, yeah. All right. <laughs> so that, like, so many times you can play that note until it gets becoming right. Uh, speaking of something that influenced like crazy, and I look back now and I get kind of mad about it. Uh, the Matrix seemed like it was so rad until every single movie for the next five years decided it needed to be the next Matrix. Tons of leather, tons of god, tons of slow mo bullet action, wire stunt, horseshit, techno music. Ugh. Yeah, a lot of shiny patent leather going on, sunglasses. Yeah. Uh, the Ma- I mean, the X Men, for Pete's sake, the X Men wore those rubber leather bullshit suits for years. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a formula for action for action movies going forward. Sunglasses, uh, like this weird kind of goth, uh, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, Cyberpunk, kind of, yeah, BSDM, whatever that kind of like leather kind of you know fetish yeah. is kind of that weird kind of thing. Top, you know, outfits going on. It was just, that was kind of a theme for like two years. Yeah, I mean, I look. I want to watch it again. I, I feel like I should revisit it since it's the twentieth anniversary of it. I remember the second one being loaded with amazing action, but it didn't make a lick of sense. And the third one was all action, which was fun, but that was like, where's the plot? <laughs> even this out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, part three, once part three came on, that was pretty much the, the nail in the coffin for that. Yeah, that but it, it uh, gave Keanu Reeves a boost for a while. I mean, they paid him like $30 million for parts two and three. But it's uh, you look back on all the people who didn't take it, and you're like, well, I guess things worked out for Will Smith and Sean Connery. <laughs> so I guess Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves, the man, they got, they got the paydays for it. And they're great in those movies. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but I, I, I can see Will Smith doing a decent job. I mean, yeah. 
if, 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 he, if he had decided to take it. Sean Connery, I'm not so sure, but, uh, you know. Yeah, they, both of them said they didn't understand it. So let's look at what the fallout was from <laughs> uh, The Matrix. Uh, he went to do Wild Wild West instead. Oh, boy. <laughs> and Sean Connery turned down this and Lord of the Rings, saying he didn't understand them. Now, when they offered him $15 million to appear in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, he says, I don't understand this, but the last two movies I didn't understand were huge, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> Uh, it's the one time he should have listened to his gut. Right? And that was his last movie. That's what you ended your career on. What? I guess he realized, like, you know what? I don't understand. I don't have a feeling for this anymore. I mean, who's his agent? I mean, yeah. you know? The, uh, the Mummy is the other one that kind of, like, oh, this is the big adventure movie before summer starts. And here's the funny thing is, if I look back at the schedules of how movies came out, it was always Memorial Day weekend is when the big movie came out. Then all of a sudden, The Mummy comes out the first week of May, and that becomes the new starting point for all summer movies. Right, no, you're right. That's when, now it's even going even earlier. Now it's yeah, going it's, well, yeah, April. Avengers now comes out the last week of April. Yeah, so they're really, you know, so, it, you know, I, I guess, the, you know, these giant blockbusters really don't want to compete against themselves, so they're looking for, like, an opening where they can, where they can, make the most money and don't have to worry about losing you know, the lion's share of revenue to some other giant blockbuster. We're doing yeah. it earlier and earlier. Yeah. yeah, the first one's a lot of fun. I remember thinking, oh, Brendan Fraser can play an action star, and then he got a bunch of work after that. It was a big hit. And then the second one came out, and it was garbage. Complete and absolute yeah. fucking garbage. It made a ton of money and made Dwayne Johnson a star, and I still have no idea why. It was the goodwill from the first one so strong. I've only, I think I've only seen the first one. Yeah, yeah second uh, one is fucking hideous. I think the problem with Steven Summers as a director is that he has a certain amount of money, but he has a certain amount of ideas, and there's never enough money to complete those special effects. It's just too much. And there, was, there was one other one with Jet Li or something. I don't know if that's part two or part three. Or Oh, yeah, yeah. The third one's okay. I'll say that. The third one's much better than part two, but I just, I'm shocked it even made it to part three, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Um, American Pie, the franchise, it took forever to end. It looks like it's over with, and at the time, it was part of that teen exploitation. Uh, how do I say it? Teen exploitation? Yeah, how do I make it better? But that's the one that kind of stood out, and critics really liked it. Yeah, that one actually had some genuine belly laughs to it. You know, it wasn't like, you know, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was heartwarming, it was genuine, it was like embarrassing. You definitely, you know, you definitely felt for these, uh, these guys are growing up and growing apart. Yeah, and I think a lot of it's about it, it, the raw honesty, even if it's bad behavior. I'm like, yeah, do you remember being a high school student? We're, sometimes we're terrible people. We feel bad about it later. But you do stupid, embarrassing things that make you cringe. And it was a little more honest in the relationships than I think most teen movies. It was trying to make Porky's more accessible, and I think it did a good job. Agreed, yeah. I, it, it definitely, you know, when you mix teenage hormones and alcohol and, you know, Peer pressure, and that's the. This is the. This is a realistic, uh, maybe a bit exaggerated, but it you know, depends on your the group of people you grew up with, I suppose. But it's definitely more realistic than some of the other team locations at, at the time. You know, it definitely, it definitely was more relatable and certainly more fun. Yeah, the uh, the Blair Witch Project came out, cost twelve bucks, <laughs> made twelve million dollars <laughs> like its first day. Um, the the that's one of those, like, I watched it once, it terrified the absolute shit out of me, I could never watch it again, and also, the beginning of that shaky cam, realistic, found footage, oh god. 
I was about to say that was a pretty cool concept. The whole the whole found footage kind of uh, faux documentary. You know what I mean? Kind of, uh, kind of it was definitely pretty for, for a time. And I've seen like there's been like hundred movies that have followed that formula since. But at the time, it was pretty cool. And yeah. you, you weren't and they they were like there wasn't a whole lot. You weren't sure if it was real or not. I mean, from like you know, promotion, they weren't saying they weren't letting on if it was real or if it's you know, so you didn't. So there was a lot of buzz about it because you weren't sure if it was a real thing or not. I, I remember blowing it for somebody by accident. They're like, I can't believe that happened. I go, oh, that didn't happen. Oh, shit. <laughs> like, just the words came out of my mouth. I could, it could have been a bigger spoiler. My bad. Yeah. But, yeah, they really did a good job marketing. That's a big part of it. But I remember people telling me, like, oh, yeah, we saw it in the theater. We had to leave because of the motion sickness. And I was like, yeah, I'll wait till video. And I just remember, like, certain moments just haunted me because they play a lot with sound. And I think that's the biggest part of it. And I remember... I remember a friend of mine was so pissed off at the ending that he jumped. And at the end of the movie, he was like, "What?" <laughs> you know, because he didn't like the way he didn't like the way it ended. I'm like, it's supposed to be found footage. You know, you think the killer is going to reveal his face? Right. The footage wouldn't be found if that was the case. You know. Yeah. The uh, the second one is actually better than I think people treat it. But I thought Blair Witch. Sometimes those are meant to be one and done. Like, don't build a franchise out of it. Yeah, I mean, how? I mean, how? Who's going to make that same mistake again? Well, who went and what? And, you know, who would be smart enough? I, I mean, I guess, you know, I guess, you know, I shouldn't say that. There are people who, who are obsessed with uh, tragedies who, who would who would repeat that thing. That's, yeah. That's a, it, it's, a, it's, it's strange that nobody from that really broke out. Like, it just seems like everybody kind of had a moment and they burst out and then kind of went back. So the future generations are going to discover this movie and they may actually believe that it's a documentary because they're not going to recognize the actors. They don't know the directors or anybody else involved with it. I can see like That's a teenager true. right now discovering Blair Witch and thinking it really happened. I mean, and, and they weren't like overly made up. I remember that one girl half the time she's got a booger hanging out of her nose. And she's <laughs> crying. I mean, so it's not like it doesn't look very Hollywood, you know, overproduced. You no. Know? So, yeah, you can see that and be uh, be totally unaware that this is an actual movie. The uh, I, this made Artisan, a company that was a little video distributor, come out of nowhere, make a ton of money. And then immediately blow through it in the next couple of years and went out of business. It was so sad. It's like, oh, we made $250 million off a movie that cost us like a million. Five years later, yeah, we're going to sell our rights to Lionsgate because we have nothing left. <laughs> I actually thought about buying my first stock in that company, and I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, so at the same time, we were ghost crazy in 99. We had The Haunting with Liam Neeson. We had Stir of Echoes with Kevin Bacon, arguably, I think, the best of all those kind of movies. And then we had The Sixth Sense, which was, like, number one. I think it's still number one. I'm not sure. It seems like it's still it was such a big movie. It just went for months. Oh, well, yeah. It, it catapulted M. Night Shyamalan to, like, you know, to, 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 to be a household name. Yeah, you know? and uh, who had a comeback, which shocks everybody. I keep expecting him to somehow go back to Sixth Sense and make a sequel. You know he's going to be desperate when that happens. I just saw Haley Joel Osment recently. Yeah. <laughs> he, I don't know. He could be in it. He looks like he a teddy bear. Look, uh, Doesn't he? He looks he like does. a big teddy bear. He was, he was just in that show on Amazon called The Boys. He is, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he, he, look, he looks like he could be... Of, I don't know his his own fatter father. You know? Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of sad, but you know he was a kid. It just happens as you get older. A lot True. of kid stars they don't grow up and look the same. But at least he's a good actor. I'll say this: I like him as an adult actor. Not, uh, no, I didn't mean he's, in a the, 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 the part he played, the, the recent that I've seen, he was good. He was yeah. good at what he did. So, yeah, he hasn't lost his ability to act. You know. 
Um, American Beauty. Looking back on it, it's now very disturbing because of <laughs> certain things. I can't believe they got. I didn't know at the time that Thora Birch was underage, and they show her topless, which disturbs me now. And two, we have Kevin Spacey, who's a big perv now. And this is one of those movies that everybody went crazy for, won all these awards. I watch it now, and I'm like, it's got a good eye, but man, is it self-indulgent. Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. That was one of those ones everyone was talking about back then. Everybody thought it was like a must-see movie at the time. Yeah. yeah just, now, now that now that what we know about Kevin Kevin Spacey, it's hard to hard to yeah, watch. Yeah, yeah. The same kind. The uh, the one that didn't do well that opened almost at the same time as American Beauty, but blew up the minute it hit video. I think it still has a strong cult following. But I know for about five years there, everybody my age was talking about Fight Club, even though we were told not to. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's weird. When I first saw the trailer in the theater before I saw it, I didn't know what to make of it. And I was like, you know, I, I, I was turned off by it. And then when I finally saw it for the first time, like upon a second release, I never saw it in the theater the first time. I saw it right after it left the theater in one of those, like, dollar theaters. As soon as, back then, I guess they still had them. But once, as soon as they leave the theater, and the, the, you know, major release, and then before they go on video, there was, like, those kind of, like, uh, Middleman theaters that just got them as soon as they leave. You know what I mean? Yeah, the dollar theaters, like basically. Dollar. Yeah. So I saw it there for the first time. I was like, oh my God, I was so wrong about this movie. It's so good. I can't believe I was you know, so judgmental for this movie for the wrong, for the, for the wrong reasons. Yeah, everybody says The Matrix is the reason that DVDs blew up, and they're not wrong. It was the first movie, I think, ever to make $50 million on DVD. But nobody talks about the fact that fight club was one of those dvds where they went all out on extras the packaging was insane and it was a big big seller for years and i think it was one of the very first studio films where they fully embraced every single scrap of special features you could add to a movie yeah i mean it's and it's like yeah at first i was like what's with this bar of stuff what does that mean and then, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah I, I didn't know what to make of it when it was first well, you know. And then I guess, yeah, I guess upon uh, second viewing and upon, uh, you know, a video release, it just, just it totally blew up. You know, a lot of movies are like that, be you're off the space, you're half-baked, etc. They don't really become super popular until from, you know, their own video. Right. The, uh, that was my favorite movie for years. Something about it spoke to me. I was a broken post-graduate from college, didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. I was angry and frustrated, and the movie spoke to me. As a guy in his 40s now, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'd want to know any of these people that are in Fight Club. And I think that's the point, is that it's supposed to speak to you at a certain point in your life, but then it also speaks to you in a different way later. And you're supposed to say, well, it's a capricious, angry youth, but at the same time, it does not need to be a rallying call. Like This seems like the kind of movie that would be really popular with you know, like young Trump supporters, you know, uh, guys in the Klan, white supremacists. It seems like they're kind of movie. Yeah, like members of the Proud Boys or something. Yeah, like so sure, that, right? yeah, that seems like something they would watch in a, a, a loop. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's it's of its moment, and it's a very important film, but you also have to understand the context, is that I don't believe that David Fincher and uh, uh, Chuck, shit, what's the guy who wrote it? He's out of Portland. Um, Chuck Palahniuk. Oh, uh... Yes, I can't pronounce his name pro pro properly, but that's that's the guy. Yeah. yeah, I don't think their intention was to hold them up as heroes. You just kind of like just this is this is life. You need to view this as it is, and you make your choice mm -hmm. on what you perceive it as. Is it good or bad? 
Right. Well, I mean, it's another guy I deal with, like, you know, multiple personality disorder and schizophrenia. So yeah. It's not like, you know. The, the book is really yeah. funny. The sequel, um, the sequel takes it into this whole different meta world where the movie's being filmed and it steps out of the movie and into our world and back into the movie and stuff like that. It's like, well, audience, you're everyone in Fight Club too. Well, I'm going to give it to you, but I'm going to give it to you the way I want to give it to you. So it's kind of a pal and I, it's kind of like uh, thumb in his nose at the uh, audience. Right. Dogma becomes one of the very first movies that's so controversial that Disney will not let Miramax release it. So they have to sell it to Lionsgate, where it becomes a big hit and basically cements Kevin Smith's career for a while as a serious filmmaker, even though I think Chase and Amy kind of did that for him. But yeah, this I was is, about to say, I, I would consider that more of his breakout. Yeah, I, I would say Chase and Amy is a better movie too, because Dogma, yes, it has a bigger budget and a bigger cast, but there's a lot of messy stuff in it, man. I think Chris Rock is terrible in it. I think the poop monster is fucking stupid. The action sequences <laughs> are so incredibly uh, incompetent. But there's good dialogue, and I think that's the most important part. The idea behind it is important. Right, yeah, I mean, it was good. Definitely a, a cool premise. Um, I don't think the execution was great, but, you know, if you can get, if you can get points for good intentions. No. <laughs> uh, that is it with movies. TVs. Uh, TV shit, TV. So I'm going to throw some TVs at you. Um, TVs. I think 99 is the beginning of the golden era of television where cable stations really start ramping up. Uh, what they were doing, I think it all starts with The Sopranos. I, that's when I think it was like, oh, we need to pay attention to what's going on over at HBO. Yeah, that was one of those ones that I heard about constantly. I never had HBO. I always felt like I was missing it to this day, all the way, you know, to this day. Hey, man, have you ever seen the, uh, what's the one um, with the dragons? <laughs> what's wrong with my brain? I can't. What is uh, it? Anyway, what's the show that just ended with the, uh, the Starks and the uh, Jon Snow and all that? Uh, oh, Game uh, of Thrones. Yeah, for some of the one I can't think of it. But that's the one, but never on HBO, so that's always, Sopranos is one of those shows I heard so much about. Um, years, oh, man, you gotta get HBO. And then, like, also, when they had Mr. Show, was on, like, oh, you gotta get HBO to see Mr. Show. Oh, you gotta, you know, damn it. I'll never yeah. do it. I can't afford it. You know, there's, there's no way. But yeah, I it's, it's Sopranos was shot, I think, on 16 millimeter, but immediately when it hit big is when they started giving everybody more money, they had more budget for the show. And all of a sudden, all the other cable stations decided they needed to compete. And here's the thing. It seemed like a lot of these shows where the protagonist was not a good guy. And that was a newer thing yeah. on television. And now that's the norm. Like, it seems like most of our television stars are severely flawed and sometimes straight-up villains. No, yeah, totally. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, you, I mean, there's no point in rooting against them because this is just a, this is just a snapshot of this guy's life. You know, for better or worse, that's just... Uh, you know, that's just the way it is. He doesn't really have any uh, redeeming qualities, but he's not supposed to. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's who he is. That's what what comes to him in the end it, is what he deserved. Right. At least we oh, assume yeah, he does. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't see it, but I heard it was, I heard the ending was controversial and they just like fades to black. Yeah, yeah. Something. You have to come up with your own ending, I guess. It's the only way to satisfy the audience. Um, right. Let's see what else debuts. Uh, we have Family Guy, the show that'll never end, even though I wanted to. The Futurama that did end numerous times, and they keep bringing it back. <laughs> well, I mean, Fat Family Guy, Family Guy ended too, and they brought that back. I remember. Like, That's right. I forgot it did get canceled after like the third season. Then it sat on the shelf in syndication for a little bit, and then that's when it built up its well, audience again. Well, exactly. And when people people started, there was like a lot of word of mouth, like uh, it had like a first season or so on uh, DVD or whatever. People were watching about how great it was. 
I, I, I just don't think it's that great. But I think when it came back the second time is when it got worse. But I will say this. If it wasn't for Seth MacFarlane having a success with Family Guy and American Dad and whatever the other shows he had, Cleveland Show, uh, we wouldn't have Ted, which is great. A million, days, a million Ways to Die in the West, which I think is severely underrated. But I've heard the Orville. I've seen only the first episode. I heard the Orville is phenomenal. And none of that would be possible without Family Guy. True, and then, you know, a lot of people, they weren't doing, like, you know, at, at the time, like, they, like the cutaways were kind of unique, you know what I mean? They, they kept having, having all, all these uh, comedic cutaways every time, you know, it was like a running joke throughout the thing, and not a lot of shows that I can think of doing that. Right, and even uh, uh, Simpsons has copied that now, where they're cut doing the cutaways. Yeah, which, you know, I, I mean, Simpsons may have done it uh, before that, but they weren't doing it to the same extent, or, no. or, or yeah. with the same, or, or, or the same uh, comedic value that yeah, I would say Scrubs is the biggest copycat of that style. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, where are they now? On VH1 is one of my favorite shows of all time because almost every segment ends with the lead singer in his backyard playing his one-hit song on an acoustic guitar. And it's just like, it, you almost take a drinking game, and here goes, he's playing the guitar. And it's always like, eight, six, seven, five, three, oh, nine. How was that? How was that? You like that? Oh, look at my dog over there. It's stuff like that. And, oh, and they're always like, oh, you put on a lot of weight and your hair fell. Flock of Seagulls, the fact that he lost his hair is ironic. Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of people in the where they now. I, saw, I remember I saw the guy, lead singer from Madness back then. It's like, well, he looks pretty good for a guy. You know yeah. What I mean? But for, I think the whole series, the whole series ended, I think, because when they did the Leif Garrett episode, and he had yeah. to confront the guy that he crippled in his drunken accident. I was like, oh, oh shit, this isn't fun anymore. This is serious. And it seemed like they kind of stopped the show after yeah. that. It really did. Like, yeah. It seemed like it did make it come to a grinding halt for sure. It was that early. Uh, yeah, that was rough. Um, we have Who Wants to Be a Millionaire debuting that summer, wiping out everything in its path. And they canceled so many TV shows because they said, hey, it's cheaper for us to keep Who Wants to Be a Millionaire on television five nights a week. And it was such a phenomenon, and yeah. I, I just can't believe we all watched this stupid show. Well, you know, at the time, it was a pretty cool concept. But then they, when it went into syndication, and then they had a different host and just kind of lost some steam. But yeah, it was kind of... It's kind of a cool, cool idea. I mean, you, you can, you know, you can make a million if you can answer all these questions. And, you know. How many times you get mad? You, you would know the answer. You're like, you stupid son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. you feel like such a genius because you happen to know. But then, of course, they'll, they're next, whatever. Somebody gets to answer, answer. You have no idea what that would be, and that's why I would have lost a million dollars. Yeah, I couldn't have answered that question, and I don't have a friend to phone. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It always drives me crazy when someone would use all of them instantly. You're like, this is the first question. You're already going to use your lifeline. Okay, whatever. What color are tomatoes not? And it'd be like yellow, red, green, and blue. And they'd be like, I don't know. I feel like I've seen a blue tomato, Rage. <laughs> or, or when they pull the audience and then the audience is going completely one way. Like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not, I'm going to go the opposite way of the audience. Yeah. Well, you never know when you got a bunch of dumb dubs. I don't know. That's true. Sometimes the audience can, you know, yeah, room for more on. Craig Kilborn Day's views with his uh, – he takes over the Tom Snyder show while Jon Stewart takes over the Daily Show. I'm going to say it worked out better for one of them and not so much for the other. Yeah, geez, Craig, Craig Kilborn. Man. He, um, I have no idea why he decided to leave the Daily Show. It was, he, 
seems yeah. to be on top of it all. And, and right. They just came but up with this. Uh, at the same time, yeah, whatever yeah. happened to Craig Kilburn? What is he doing? No clue. Yeah, nobody likes Craig him. Gunn. He was a huge prick, and I guess it caused a big falling down. That's part of the reason why he left. And uh, John Stewart I, still, to this day, has made an impact because we just saw what he did with the 9-11 uh, fund. Yeah, totally. Uh, the funny thing, the, the one lasting impact I have with Craig Coleman, I don't know why it's still in my mind, but I remember he was making fun of an actor, almost to his face. He was like, you guys are always doing this. He was doing like a, a pantomime of somebody doing bicep curls. You guys are always interested in this. Uh, just lifting weights, getting the biceps right. Like, I mean, a lot of times it's for a preparation for a movie role. You kind of have to like, you know, you have to have to be in shape. You can't like, you know, you can't really be an out of shape action star, you know. So he was kind of like making fun of actors. I mean, your bread and butter is interviewing actors. Right. Like, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, he was such a douchebag. I'm glad they got, he doesn't do much anymore. I'm sure he hasn't had that moment where he like, oh, I realized I was a tool. I apologize. You know, <laughs> I feel like he's going to go down the road like Chevy Chase. I'm too cool for the room. I'm going to mock all of you. 90s was definitely yeah, just, the era of snark. I just don't see him having that moment of self-reflection. No. <laughs> uh, a show that had massive amount of self-reflection, launched so many stars, it's still one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Guess what? It won an Emmy, and it only lasted 18 episodes. I'm talking about Freaks and Geeks. Great show, for sure. Yeah, that's totally seriously underrated show, and it gave us so many, uh, so many of our current Hollywood actors today, man. Or at least, at least a, a couple of them, I should say. Yeah, but I mean, all of them still work. I mean, even the youngest oh, kid, he is now like yeah. a writer and director. They did Game Night. Yeah, he's been on. I mean, I've seen him on various things. I've seen him on Bones and whatnot. Yeah, and some other shows. Even the um, uh, the little heavy set, one of his heavy set friends. I've seen him do some things. He was on Glorious Bastards. Um, right, been, right, he, right. He's, yeah, he's probably the one with the least success. Well. Yeah, but I'm just thinking, like, the guy, uh, but just the creative Star, people that came out of this. James Franco directs a movie every week. Uh, <laughs> Seth Rogen has directed and produced a bunch of stuff. We had Judd Apatow, who's now. We call it like the Apatow verse. Like the, he has a way of changing comedy, and then we have Paul yeah. Feig who directed Ghostbusters and Spy and Bridesmaids. So many creative people coming out of this. Yeah, it's weird. It, it, it's it's so weird to think. It, se- it seems like that show wasn't on the air that long ago. But then it was. And then when, of course, when we look at how they look compared to today, it was a long time ago. It seems like it wasn't on the air uh, like that long ago. It yeah, like it's it weird. It just the life it shoots by so fast. And you look and you're like, these are just kids, but now they're people, like, they're our age, basically. And yeah. it's just one of these shows that really struggled. I think it was really stupid of them to play it on Saturday nights when teenagers were not home. Um, they should have put it on, like, a Monday or Tuesday, something like that. And critics loved it. They talked about it all summer long up to its debut. I watched every episode religiously until they canceled it and started jumbling around. They aired like three episodes during the summer, and then they pushed it over to Family Channel, and that's when they aired all the episodes in chronological order for once, and that's when it built its audience. I remember yeah, taking I mean, them it, off of Family Channel, and then I feel bad about it, just selling them on eBay. <laughs> well, it got us, got us nostalgic for the 80s game. We were talking about how the wedding single was the first thing that happened, and it's kind of followed up, and it got us like re- remembering finally the 80s which weren't that long ago <laughs> yeah. at that point. Well, this is real so, early yeah, 80s. Yeah. I mean, it was almost 20 years because it starts fall of 1980, which yeah. was 19 years prior. That makes a little more sense. But it's just so funny how close Wade Singer is to the era that it's reflecting upon. And I thought yeah. since 70s show broke out so well in the first season that Freaks and Geeks was going to be a hit. 
And I think the problem yeah. is, is people weren't ready for that style of comedy. It makes you squirm a little bit. Right, yeah. No, for, for sure. I guess, I, guess, I mean, I, it's hard to, you know, find an audience. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a, like a formulaic sitcom. And it was, uh, it, 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 it was it definitely wasn't following the same model that uh, the 70s show was. Right. And, uh, yeah, it, it, but it definitely did have that. Uh, it definitely did have that, that cringe factor. And that, uh, that, that seems like part and parcel for, for today's audience. Back then, yeah, it wasn't wasn't as uh, it wasn't as widely known as uh, or, or widely viewed as, as it is today. Yeah, I think it's funny. It's two years later, they tried to give it another go with Undeclared, and they had a few repeating team members from that. It was good, but it wasn't uh, as I good. That. I don't yeah, think. Yeah. yeah, I think was Jason Segel was in that. Yeah, um, well, Jason Segel had a reoccurring on that one. He wasn't a regular cast member, but that's the one where um, Seth Rogen went over and Judd Apatow produced. It's good, but it's not great. And again, lasted one season. I don't even know if it lasted a whole season. Did it have um, the guy from what's his from uh, Sons of Anarchy on there? Was he on there too? Right, believe. that's where he started. Um, what is his name? Uh, I know Jay Barishall started on it, who became an Aptow guy. Um, right. Charlie Hunnam. That's who I'm thinking of. There you go. Yeah, and I mean, what a what a completely different role from uh, <laughs> from his like you know from, from the one he's known for as as, as uh, the guy from Sons of Anarchy. He's completely yeah. different. All right, so the last thing we'll discuss is quickly video games of 1999. Super Smash Brothers and Mario Party debut, basically changing how Nintendo does its games. It debuted like the party game, where it wasn't really about completing levels; it was more about just playing against your friends. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean to, I mean to, to the success, to the credit of the success of that game, my son is playing Smash Brothers as we speak. Wow, on his Nintendo Switch, so yeah, it's, it's still just... going strong. People still love it. It's a really well-designed game. I had a lot of fun playing it. Uh, the one that I really loved was Tony Hawk Pro Skater, the first successful. That was, that, that was my jam right there. Yeah, sure. it, it made these guys household names. This is the one thing I'll say about the Extreme era um, is that it made the X Games a household thing. People knew who Matt Hoffman was, Dave Mira, Tony Hawk, stuff like that, Bob Burnquist. And mm -hmm. these video games are a big part of getting them into, you know, mainstream um, media. Well, yeah, totally. I mean, because look, there's no way you can practice every day for 20 years. You still, you still might not be able to do what these pro skaters can do. I mean, not, not only, not only are they, you know, are they, you know, naturally talented athletes, but they require a lot of practice as well. And it's like it really does make you appreciate, you know, like the, you know, how hard and uh, how skilled these. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering if Tony Hawk can walk at all, though. All that impact on his knees over and over and over and over and over for decades. Because he's one of the he's one of the guys who really held up. I mean, he skated from like the early '80s up until what about ten years ago? Yeah, he. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't like. Um, I don't think he does it. I've seen him in some. He does some light skating. He's not doing any of the big air tricks. Anymore. No, no, he's more he like exposition, like million, kind of showing off. Yeah, he's in a million surgeries on broken joints and whatnot. He just, he's, he's in his fifties. His body just can't handle it anymore. But yeah, he's one of those guys who's, uh, you know, he doesn't have to. <laughs> he's got a you know successful clothing brand at the time a very successful video game brand, which lasted for a few years. I don't think it's. I, and I've, I've, they've been talks about like you know uh, like reinventing it, bringing it back. Yeah. The next version of the Well, I mean, is it as popular though anymore? I feel like the popularity of X Games died off some time ago. It did. Yeah, it's not definitely not as as popular as it was in the uh, late '90s, early zeros. Um, it's still going strong, 
But, you know, things come in cycles. Yeah, it's kind of like the way, I feel like it's, you know, the Warped Tour, I think, is coming to an end or did end. You know, that kind of thing that people were looking for in the late 90s, early 2000s is just pretty much over with. Yeah, yeah, now it seems like everything, like, we're on, like, this hip-hop odyssey we're on right now. Yeah, oh, that just seems like everybody's self-contained in their world now. Like, they don't go outside and communicate with other people. (laughs) We're all on social media and uh, and buying our laptops. You know, we create music on a computer now instead of in a garage with three other buddies. Right, and then it requires you going to some kind of festival or something. Yeah. Everybody wants to binge-watch everything at home, and, you know. (laughs) So it requires too much effort. The uh, the Dreamcast, the system that everybody thought was going to be the big system that was going to save Sega, that was going to change video games forever, critically acclaimed. I know people are hardcore fans of it. For some reason, it just did not connect. Yeah, I mean, it had um, it had a initial the initial following. I think was was okay, but then yeah, it just didn't have the um, for whatever reason. I remember there was a lot of hype about it when it first came out. When they were telling me how great it was. Yeah, it just seemed like it was doing really well. I played some of the demo games, and I feel like whatever happened the next year with PlayStation 2, I think it's because they put a DVD player into the PlayStation 2. That took away a lot of steam, but then the Xbox came out, and its hardware was so much better than Dreamcast. That also hurt it. Yeah, yeah, I just, you know, I guess, I mean, I guess it was with the amount of games they had. They didn't have a huge catalog of games. Yeah. Titles that people were that that well, you know, well-versed with. If I remember correctly, almost all their games were in-house, and that's why they're such a small catalog, is because they had high-quality control, because they weren't licensing out stuff, they weren't going to other companies, and a lot of the other companies were hooked up with PlayStation. Because Sega didn't have the big bucks. Sony and Microsoft had the big bucks, so they would sign all these companies for exclusives. No, yeah, true. Yeah, that's the thing, and that's why I remember a lot of my friends who have back in the time didn't get it. Like, well, there's just not enough games that I'm familiar with, or games that I want to like invest money in, you know. So I have to buy this. I have to buy this expensive system just to buy these handful of expensive games, which I'm not even sure that are are worthy of what little money I make. Right, right. That's the thing with with like with kids with disposable income. They you know they only have so much of it. So it's, it's, it's could be a, a big gamble and won't pay off. And then we've seen other systems die. You know, so you want something that has somewhat of like uh, a successful track record where you know we're not going to invest in something that's only a handful of games that we're going to want to sell later. You know? And then if, if we can sell it at all, you know, yeah, so we're not working on the secondary market for it. We come to the end. There's one more thing to discuss. It's so obscure. I just want to mention it. Speaking of game systems that were extremely powerful, well made. But a very small catalog of games was the Neo Geo Pocket, a game system I was obsessed with. I absolutely adored it. But there's only like 12 games, and they were all from Neo Geo. They didn't license out anything else besides Pac-Man. By the way, Pac-Man has played no better than it did on the Neo Geo Pocket. And they made a mistake. They want to compete with Game Boy. Do not debut your system in black and white. They didn't realize until two years later that they need to go with the Neo Geo Pocket Color, and by then it was just too fucking late. Yeah, that's the only thing. I, just the Game Boy uh, had such hype behind it, and then I remember hearing about Neo Geo's price tag. I was like, God, how do you get compete with that? Yeah. I'm sure the games, the games aren't as good, but geez, it costs three times as much. Yeah. Well, I bought it way after the fact. I bought it in 2004 in a bundle pack on eBay, Literally six games in a blister pack with a console, and then someone threw in a, the old black and white one for free with it, 
and I got it for like 30 bucks. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's just you, you try out new things. It always seems like there's waves of game consoles throughout the 90s and early 2000s where it's like, okay, the next wave's coming, everybody's going to compete. It's kind of like the, the presidential running for the president or whatever. All of a sudden, everybody wants to be president. Not all of them have the resources to get there. And then most of them yeah. blow out. Yeah. It's just funny thinking about all the game systems over the decades that we've been around that have been just absolute failures that got hyped for a moment. Do you remember the N-Gage, the phone you talked into like a taco? That yeah, was a game it was a, basically a game phone thing. It was just like this thing, I just a game system just for, you know, it was the hottest thing. It was like a phone that you could only buy like at Babbage's or one of those computer <laughs> game shops. It was, just, it was so strange. Yeah, and it's How does this work? How does this... Yeah, it was, it was huge. Yeah, the thing was massive, and you had to talk into the side of it, like sideways. And yeah. then you'd flip it over to play the games, because they couldn't figure out how smartphones could be a screen and talk into it at the same time. I don't know. Uh, but there's like Tiger Games, I was thinking, that was uh, a black and white, cheap garbage system, way after the fact that everybody was already in color. Seriously, don't they debut a black and white system in the 2000s. They didn't have touchscreen technology like they, like, like they do now. So they had yeah. to have everything with like, the buttons and then you have to have it on the side for like all manual controls. And right. Do you remember the Phantom? Its name was appropriate because it never showed up. It never showed up. I was about to say. It was <laughs> supposed to have that. a hard drive in it, no moving drive, no discs. You downloaded every game, which is way ahead of everybody else. This was in 2003 oh, yeah. when they debuted it. And it never showed up, even though they had tons of investors wondering what happened. (laughs) Talk about Phantom. There goes all your revenue. All your money investments. All right. That's the end of the realm for 1999. Uh, Kids. What what? what about you're going to mention Y2K and how we thought. Oh, my God. How do we forget that Will Smith all told us, (laughs) Willie style, um, that uh, the Will Lennian was right around the corner. And yeah, we all, I can't believe I almost forgot. Thank you. We almost flipped out over the fact that we thought the whole world was going to come to an end. We're going to go back into the dark ages of what, 1988? <laughs> um, because yeah. what, they wouldn't roll over to 2000 because they never planned for it? Right. It would be like the, the computers recognized that it was 1900 or something instead of, so then not, nothing would work. Yeah. And our system, all our computer systems would shut down, everything would cease to work, and it'd be anarchy and chaos and you know how can we and of course nothing happened well i bet you alcohol sales went real well that night as people were like oh dear god it's right around the corner dick clark the ball's dropping we're all gonna die oh we're good we're fine was there, there was a bar in my there's a bar in my neighborhood called the y2k tavern that just like i don't know i don't i think it i think they they, they, they named it that in 1998 or something it's the <laughs> y2k tavern and i was like you're really monopoly you're really trying to monopolize Oh, like you know, a short window of success here. You know what I mean? It's going to be 1999 for a year, you know, and maybe go in a 2001, it would kind of maintain some popularity with that name, but then, you know, it's no longer called that. Yeah, it's a uh, huh. Yeah, I don't think I want to dive into the 2000s. Honestly, I think about it now. I think it's it's good to wrap this up and move on. Um, if you listen to the podcasts, there's a bunch of shows, and I'm. I'm almost to the sixth year now, and I realize that I've over, they're just overkill. A lot of these shows are going to be wrapped up. We're going to debut The Scholars of Sketch, and we're debuting another show, which will be more like a rewind, look back on all sorts of nostalgic things mixed with now. So 
that way you get all your cartoons, your video games, your comic books, movies, kind of all in. So I'm literally just basically just to be doing two or three shows instead of the, I think, six I'm doing right now. It's just too much. It's exhausting. I'm not getting paid for any of this either, so neither are you. So thank yeah. you for doing this, even though oh, yeah, well. I guess it's just us hanging out. Well, I guess I mean, that's why you want to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like a phone conversation I can have, like, you know, once a month, not a big deal to me. But yeah, you, you, you're the ones doing most of the work on the research and stuff. Yeah, like, well, yeah. well, I should deal yeah. with the heavy lifting. It's, it's, you remind me of things I forget sometimes, but yeah, you're my guest. I just want to be a good host. And... Yeah, credit where credit's due. You're doing doing a great job. I mean, I would, I you've definitely completed a lot more stuff than I could ever remember. And you could do a, a well, fair amount of research. Thank God and for like Wikipedia. Times that by seven. <laughs> times that by seven by all the different podcasts you're doing. So that's yeah. I can imagine that can be pretty exhausting. <laughs> all right, everybody. Uh, thank you for five years of support. And uh, Tony, thank you for being my guest for four of those five. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Anything you want to say before we go? Uh, no. Yeah, I mean, this was like, I mean, like, this is wrapping up. I mean, 1999, that's when I moved. This was a pretty pivotal year for me. I mean, because this is like this year I moved out of my house and into a different state and just, you know, started my uh, my trip into, a, into adulthood, even though I technically wasn't an emotional adult. But that's when I at least, uh, you know, decided to venture on my own. So it was like, yeah. as, as, as it became 2000, you know, I, you know, I left my my childhood behind, so it makes it very appropriate that 1999 be the last year. Yeah, my my 1999 is me looking at myself in the mirror every single day, going, "Why the fuck did you go to college? You're working at Blockbuster, <laughs> or you're working for the Parks and Rec Department? Oh, you're working at Papa John's again." It was a really rough, weird year for me. So, yeah, it's kind of fun looking back on some of the stuff that did make me happy, except for Len. Don't you guys steal my sunshine, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, check us out on Facebook under Retro Rocket Entertainment. If you like this show, obviously, we have other shows, and we're going to have some new stuff for you. So thank you, and have a good night. Later.